in the first place. We sort of all raised our hand in agreement of, you know, we've asked those questions of why did even God allow it to even happen? Why not just the fall of Satan, take Satan, bind him up forever, and never worry about it again? Uh, why did he even put that? Anyone ever wondered why is that even tree? Why, why is that tree even in the garden? The potential for, for just this one bad thing to go wrong? Right, we ask all these questions because we want all these answers, but tonight I want to try to give us a little bit of help in that, in understanding that, first of all, we can't understand everything. Right? We don't have the mind of God. We don't know the depths or the riches. We can certainly ponder and wrestle with them. But at the end of the day, there are many things that are still yet a mystery to us, and that is part of the beauty, not just of the gospel of salvation, but as well as all of Scripture, that no matter how much we dig, no matter how far we go, no matter how high we climb in trying to understand all that God has revealed Himself, we cannot fully grasp all things, which is all the more reason to trust God and to praise God. Uh, but let's begin tonight by reading um, this passage of Scripture. Uh, Genesis chapter 3, verse 1 tells us, Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of the tree of the garden? And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die, for God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to, to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof, and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. And from that moment on, everything changed, not just in the life of Adam and Eve, but for every single person that would ever be born. Now, we would be born dead in sins and trespasses. We have talked about are we born sinners and why? And the answer is yes, we're born sinners. And it's because of one man's sin. Romans chapter 5, verse number 12 clearly shows us that Adam's sin has now been imputed to our account. But in the same sense, you and I um, are, are sinners not because we sin, but rather we sin because we're sinners. We're born naturally doing that which is evil, born rebels against God, even born enemies against God, going contrary to His will, to His word, even the most saintly seeming of, of uh, individuals in the church, unless there has been true a biblical Holy Ghost conviction, repentance, and a, a, a placing of faith and trust in Jesus alone, then there is still yet separation, there is still no forgiveness of sins. And so we find this key that all throughout Scripture, Real salvation, real restoration, real reconciliation, redemption, and forgiveness only comes through the blood of Jesus Christ and through faith in Him. Now, this brings us to the question tonight that we began answering last week and we sort of held off here, and that is why was Satan or sin allowed to enter the garden? Let me ask you this tonight, all right? I want a little bit of participation. Is God all-powerful? Yes. Is God all-knowing? Yes. Is God ever-present? Means everywhere once. Yes. So, couldn't God stop somebody from doing something? Yes. Yeah, it wasn't a trick question, right? God can do what He wants to do, can He? Right? Absolutely, He's God. So why does God not stop Eve from grabbing that fruit? Why does God not stop Adam from taking it from his wife? Why does God not, as, as Adam is getting ready to bring that fruit to his lips, smack it out of his hands? Right, that's what we want to try to answer tonight. First of all, I want to answer it by saying, here in this passage, nor in any other do we truly find the direct answer 
to this question and then an answer following in, in one particular verse. Rather, we find the biblical principle that God is certainly sovereign, ruling over all things, yet in His sovereignty and in His sovereign choosing and in sovereign will, He has allowed and desired that His creation has this free will to choose to either obey God as He was designed to do or to disobey Him. And Adam here in this garden as the federal head and representative of the human race has one rule. And ultimately that one rule is not necessarily even uh, just about trees and fruit, but it goes something much more deeper. Will you trust God for everything that He has given to you? Or will you take this one thing which He has said do not eat and say that's the one thing that I want? Well, what do we find about human nature as sinners? Human nature as sinners, we see all the good things that God has given and we say, but I want that one. I want the forbidden one. I want the one that I'm not supposed to have because it, it spikes my curiosity. It, it makes me feel something that this other stuff doesn't, you know, this other stuff is nice. God's given it, but, but that seems really nice. Unfortunately, this is exactly how Satan deceived Eve and how even Adam and his uh, lustful self uh, desired uh, to, to know and to have something more that they both felt that we'll see later on over the next few weeks that I believe that they felt that God was withholding something from them. Because certainly, logically, in our human mind and flesh, we would say, well, how come God won't let me have from that tree? He's let me have from that tree, so why not that one? And here we go, why though? Couldn't all of this been avoided? Couldn't all of the tragedy, all of the death, all of the pain and sorrows of this life been avoided? And the answer is yes. But the answer is yes. If, if Adam obeyed God perfectly and completely. But did he? No. He only had this one law, this one rule, and he disobeyed. And in his disobedience, death and sin is now passed upon all of us. So here what we find is that there is much mystery of things that we, we cannot know, and that is perfectly okay. But through the allowance and then the imputation of sin, God is able to reveal His grace and glory. Throughout all of time and eternity, there are these two things of which we find that God does. And even in Genesis 3, we're going to see this. We're going to find God's grace given to two sinners who immediately deserved uh, not just to be thrown out of the garden, but even more so to be cast away into hell forever. Well, every just the smallest of sins, as we've talked about, is deserving of damnation. There is no other way to put that. Every sin, it goes contrary to, and is a spot and a blemish against a holy God. It is rebellion. It is cosmic treason. It is a, a total disregard for His law, for His love towards us. This is a perfect relationship that Adam has with his Creator, that Adam and Eve get to walk with God literally. But for them... In this moment in chapter 3, it would not be enough. So why does God even allow this to take place? You see, we, though we have God's sovereignty, we as well have man's responsibility. God sovereignly could, could make anything happen. He has just spoken the world into existence out of nothing. It literally just by His own divine decree and, and power and, and, and might and design, He has made and spoken everything and formed and fashioned man so He could stop anything. But yet, in the middle of this, there is this divine decree that Adam has the ability to either choose God and live or reject God's law 
and not only face death, but that everyone after him then too would have that placed upon them. That you and I are guilty in Adam's guilt and that it has been passed on to us and that we too then find ourselves doing that which is naturally wrong, naturally separated from God. So we find though that this is is certainly within a divine knowledge and plan, but as well that this is man's choice that has brought this terror upon all of creation. Um, Here I want to give you a few things to, to sort of ponder a little bit. Uh, now, I don't always agree, and certainly don't always agree with every single thing that every commentator has to say. If that were the case, though, we'd, we'd, I mean, if we had to agree with every single person about every single topic, we would never agree with anybody, ever. Uh, but with, with Grudem here, I believe he does a, a fine job in this point. He's off on a tremendous amount of other things, but here he does a, does a good job. He says, first, we must clearly affirm that God himself did not sin. Right? Can God sin? No. That's why I believe that Jesus though he was tempted of Satan in the wilderness, it was not to get him to sin, but it's rather recorded to show us that he, excuse me, not just show us that he would not sin, but show us that he could not sin, right? Because of his divinity, because that he is God. Now, God being holy, God being righteous and just and pure, there is no sin. There is no ability for him to do that which is unrighteous or unjust. This is why the Bible teaches and even asks the question, is there any injustice with God? Has God done, ever done anything that we could look at and say, that's not right? Never. So here, the same then could even be taken a step further and go, is there anything that we could then maybe accuse God and say, well, God, since you allowed it, then that must be unjust of you. Wrong there too. He says, first, we must clearly affirm that God himself did not sin and God is not to be blamed for sin. James talks about that, Right? Can we say that God has called us to sin? It even says that we can't even say that the devil caused us to sin. It is our own lust, our own pride, our own um, sinfulness or, or potential to sin that has caused us. He says it was man who sinned and it was angels who sinned. And in both cases, they did so by willful voluntary choice. To blame God for sin would be blasphemy against the character of God. But then Grudem continues to go into this. And this is part of much where the mystery, mystery comes. He says, though, also we must never think that sin surprised God or challenged or overcame his omnipotence or his providential control over the universe. Let me ask you this. Is God ruler over all things? Yes. And if God is sovereign, then God must be sovereign in all things. And he absolutely is. If God is not sovereign, then God is not God. Therefore, God is sovereign. He rules over all things. He knows all things. There is nothing that surprises or catches God off guard. Let me ask you, right? When you sneeze, does it catch you off guard? Sometimes it does, doesn't it, right? Where'd that come from, right? Especially the ones that come two, three, four, five in a row. You're going, what in the world? Well, even your sneezes, even four, five, and six in a row, do not catch God by surprise. Uh, Your hair that might fall down the drain does not catch God by surprise. It does not throw off His his design or His uh, plans or His purposes everything that has taken place throughout this world, there's not a single thing that God has gone, oh man, I, I didn't have that in the book. We've got we to gotta look back and we've got to draw up another play here. All right? this, is the, this is not like the game of football here where there's constant this sort of reaction and uh, preparing and changing the game plan as we go along. God has forever and forever known what would take place. However, though, as Gruden continues, 
He says, therefore, even though we must never say that God himself sinned or is to be blamed for sin, yet we must also affirm that God who accomplishes all things according to the counsel of his will, Ephesians 1.11, the God who does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what are you doing, Daniel 4.35, did ordain that sin would come into the world, even though he does not delight in it, even though he ordained that it would come about the voluntary choices of moral creatures. God knew long before he speaks out of nothing and says, let there be light, that not only he would create light, but he knew everything else he would create on days 2, 3, 4, 5, and 6. He knew about the, the Sabbath day. He knew as well about the day in which Adam, regardless of how long he was there in the garden, he knew that that day would come that Adam would sin. Even this, right? Have you ever wondered, if, since God knows all things, why in the garden does God say, Adam, where are you? Right? In verse 9 of chapter 3, and, and the Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, Where art thou? Does God not actually know where Adam is? I mean, of course he knows where Adam is. And what we're going to see later on is once we get to that passage, he's, he's really drawing Adam and saying, essentially, Adam, stand up, come be accounted for. Right? Come stand up and, and, and confess what you've done. What Adam did is instead of, uh, instead of running to God, who certainly is the one he should have ran to, he ran away from God. Why? Because sin causes us to run from God, who is the, truly the only one that can help us. This all-knowing, all-powerful, ever-present God allows for such a thing as sin to take place to demonstrate His graciousness to these same sinners there in the garden and as well to extend His grace to every other soul throughout all of human history who would be just as sinful and wicked and vile so that His grace would be extended to them so that they would be saved by His grace and, and, and kept by His grace and that it would be to show His glory and as well so that those who would receive His grace by faith would then give Him glory forever and forever and forever. I want to give to you here that ultimately, long before we get to day two and three of creation, the Lord God already has Calvary in mind. The Bible tells us in Acts chapter 2, this is on the day of Pentecost, Peter is preaching and he's preaching the gospel, and here's what he says in verse number 23 of Acts chapter 2. It says, Him... Jesus, being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. Now, this was not some sort of determinate counsel and foreknowledge that took place after Adam's sin, but rather long before Adam was even created. That the cross was foreknown and foreplanned to demonstrate grace and glory. Let me ask you tonight, and this is no trick question, what demonstrates the grace and glory of God more than the cross of Jesus? There's nothing. Because it is there at the cross of Calvary where Jesus dies for sinners that we find the grace of God literally incarnate, but as well being extended to man. But we there find as well the glory of heaven there, very much so in the midst. That God, His, His presence is there. That He Himself, His own Son, his only begotten Son there dying for the sins of the world so that those who receive His grace, then God the Heavenly Father is glorified so that He might glorify His Son to give Him authority and power over all creation. 
you and I remember, and we wholeheartedly agree, that as Genesis chapter 1 as well for tells and pictures Revelation 21 and 22, meaning the, the beginning is uh, sort of pregnant with the end. Well, the beginning of all things is as well pregnant with the idea of the cross. God certainly knows that these things will come. But God accounts for sin. It is very much in His plan because it would be through this that He would demonstrate His grace and His glory to all of mankind. This points to the, the purpose of the cross. This points to every ounce of Scripture that there is from creation to the cross, your conversion to the great day of consummation. Everything is by His grace and for His glory. Everything demonstrates or reveals His grace. But as well as it demonstrates and reveals His glory. And his glory is not something that we just give to Him, but rather His glory is His intrinsic glory, which is all of His attributes. It is all that God is. It is His holiness, His wrath, His love, His justice, His righteousness, uh, His forgiveness, all, all of these things. So when we ask the question, why did God even allow all this? Let's look further and not only ask, why did God allow Adam to sin? Let's ask the next question, why did God put to death His own Son? To demonstrate His grace and glory. To redeem a sinful people to Himself. So that throughout all of eternity, all those who would know Him would be able to glorify Him and to know Him forever and forever. Which is really and truly to fulfill the role and purpose of what Adam had in the garden and what Adam was supposed to be able to keep in the garden by submission and obedience. That's what worship truly boils down to, submission and obedience. And Adam was called to, to worship the Lord and to know the Lord. To really know God and to make Him known and, uh, throughout this world. And Adam failed. Yet Christ has made a way so that you and I might do the same. We must understand, though, as well, that there is much mystery as to why, but ultimately all things that God does and purposes will bring about the good of His people and demonstrate His own glory. I want to give you a few reasons given by Anthony uh, Burgess. Anthony Burgess was one of Samuel Rutherford's colleagues at the Westminster Assembly. Uh, these, are, these are Puritan men. He addressed the same question, similarly draws attention to the greater glory for God in permitting sin. He notes, however, that he would often that he would often be better to ask why sin is committed rather than why it is permitted. I think that is truly the better question. Not the question tonight that we might think on our heart or our mind, why did God allow sin? But more so is this, why did man sin? If we remember just back in Genesis 2, Adam has it made in the shade with pink lemonade, right? A little umbrella, everything's great. Remember, Adam is placed in a perfect place. He is without sin and perfect fellowship and relationship before God. He has a perfect marriage, a perfect wife, a perfect life. He's got the animals and none of them are chasing him down to try to eat him alive. Rather, instead, he's gotten to name them. He gets to enjoy fellowship with God's creation and with the Creator Himself. He, he is in, in a constant state of being able to worship God freely and to know God, to walk with God. Could it get any better? It sounds like heaven, doesn't it? Sounds like what it was supposed to be like. So the question is not why did God let Adam sin, but the question is 
Why did Adam, in the middle of all of that, desire the one thing that would keep him from experiencing all of that? It would be like today, to bring it to our context, if you knew today, and by the way, this is the truth, if you knew that trusting in Jesus today would keep you out of hell, why would you put it off? If you knew that that was the case, immediately you'd get it right. Why? Because you don't want hell. And you, if you knew all the glories and the splendor and the enjoyment and the joy and the peace and the presence of God that there is in heaven, how could you go, well, I don't know. I don't know, I don't know if that's enough. I want more than that. But ultimately, that's what sin does. And ultimately, that's what Adam does. Ultimately, that's what you and I do in every single sin that we've ever committed is we go, he on this side, I could know God and enjoy God by submitting and obeying His will. But all that perfection just sounds too good to be true. I like what's over here that's temporary. right? The fruit of sin, much like Adam tasting in the garden, lasts but just a moment, but has a long effect. That's exactly what sin does today. Why? The question is not why would God allow it, but why would we commit it? But here he gives five sort of reasons, if you will, that he can muster up, and none of which truly, and even all five together, don't fully give us a sort of going, okay, well, that must be the answer. But they certainly help us to wrestle with it a little bit, and I think we should. Here he says, first of all, one, to exalt and magnify Christ. Have you ever thought that if Adam never sins, that Jesus never has to be revealed? Jesus never comes, that Jesus never has to die, that Jesus never, we don't have the cross, we don't have any of these things. Right? There's a magnification in Christ, not in, just in the death, burial, and resurrection, but as well in the ascension and the soon return and the current state of Him um, uh, there upon uh, the throne and, and, and interceding for His people and all of these glories. God works the greatest good, Christ our mediator, from sin. If there had been no sin, there would have been no Christ. The incarnation, the eternal Son, always was and will be. Could you imagine such? Certainly it would have been nice if Adam never sins, and then you and I never sin, and we get to enjoy this garden-like state forever, but Adam commits this sin, and each one of us now imputed sin, but God in His providence knows that Adam will do such, therefore has already planned the death and substitutionary sacrifice of His Son to redeem man. And that it would even be through the seed of these first sinners that this heavenly divine Son would be born of a virgin into this world to crush the head of this subtle, slithery, deceiving serpent. To exalt and magnify Christ. And if He be high and lifted up, He would draw all men unto Himself. And as Stephen being stoned to death sees the Lord standing. That John in Revelation sees the Lord to exalt and to magnify Christ. Secondly, he, Burgess gives us another reason, to exalt God's attributes. Once more we find the continued theme of the glory of God. His justice in punishing sin, His mercy and grace in forgiving sin, and His wisdom in overruling it. We must not therefore profanely cavil at the existence of sin. Rather, we should adore from the heart 
all the glorious attributes of God that are exalted because of it. As sin abounded, so God's grace and mercy have abounded. Tonight, even for example, when we offer praises to God, what are some of the things that we thank God for the most? His love, His grace, His mercy, His faithfulness. Let me ask you, would you understand the depth or the importance of His love, His grace, His mercy, and His faithfulness if you had never sinned? It is the fact that we are yet sinners and Christ died for sinners. Christ died for the ungodly. That's what makes grace truly so amazing. Grace is not amazing if there is no sin. That's that's the whole point of grace. Grace is grace because there is sin. Mercy is mercy because there is sin. We see that? And so God, that He is holy, that He is love, that He is just, that He is gracious, that He is merciful, that He is all of these things. But those things of which He is cannot be revealed and to us from our eyes, from our understanding, unless we know the depth and depravity of what sin is. Then we do realize how amazing grace is. We do realize how great His faithfulness is. Then we do realize that though our sins, they are many, His mercy is more. We find that these attributes are abounding all the more because our sin abounds. So therefore, we see God and know God in a way in which we were truly meant to. Furthermore, he says to work for the very good of the person that commits it. Have you ever thought about that? That God does not just the moment sin happens come and smite Adam and Eve and ball them up and say, well, let's try again. We're going to see later on in this chapter, he comes to them and he's, what he's going to do is to kill an innocent animal to clothe them in bloody coats of skin. To remind them of the horrors of sin. To remind them as well forever and forever. And to remind even you and I that it is the substitutionary death of another to make us right before God, to be clothed and to no longer be naked in our sin. He says, as a blasphemer and a persecutor, Paul was the chiefest sinner of all. He was therefore more humble than all. We find that God uses in the midst sinners. God uses. Even God uses and has used throughout the Bible Lost and sinful people. Y'all ever heard of Pharaoh in Egypt? Yes? Alright? Pharaoh in Egypt, God says to even Moses, before Moses even goes there, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart so that I might demonstrate my glory and my attributes so that you, my people, would know me and I would deliver you to give you the promises of which I've promised your fathers. Think about that. Did Pharaoh ever get saved? No. Pharaoh hardened his heart. God hardened his heart. And ultimately, his hardened heart led him to ride through this opened up dry Red Sea as the walls of water on either side to hunt down the children of Israel, to go and to slaughter them was his plan. But what the devil meant for evil, what man meant for evil, God meant for good. What we find in the life of Joseph. He says, what 
You meant for evil. God meant for good. So what do we see? Though sin comes into the garden, what the devil means for evil, God used for good to bring about salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ to demonstrate His grace and glory. You ever thought that it was even through your sinful condition that it was your sinful condition in seeing that that God used to bring you to salvation? That is the goodness of God that leadeth men to repentance, not turning over a new leaf, but to repentance. That we see God's goodness, though I am not good, but He's still good to me, a sinner, and that is what converts the heart. Furthermore, he says to glorify grace in the godly. He says opposites illustrates, uh, illustrate one another. In rhetoric, there is a device called antithesis, which serves to add greater beauty. In the same way, Augustine says that there is an eloquence in the things when good is praised by means of evil. Thus, the dark night sets out the day. The dark shadows in the picture adorn it, and the pause or silence in singing make the melody sweeter. Meaning in this, it, in the middle of our sin, in the middle of a sinful world, even in a sinful condition with our sin-cursed bodies and the sin-cursed world, that God is still yet at work to bring about redemption. And what we find from the very first sin and the very first sinners to the very last sin and the very last sinners is that God pours out His grace and His glory so that they might be redeemed. All those who would trust in Him. Lastly, he then says, to demonstrate excellent graces in the godly. He says, these have been evident when God permitted wicked men to satisfy their intentions. The patience, zeal, and strength of Christian martyrs were seen because of the wickedness of Nero and Diocletian's persecutors. God makes the goodness of the godly more admired by contrast with the wickedness of the wicked. We find that God has used a sinful time to yet still receive glory, to yet still save a soul. There have been countless martyrs who have seen their very persecutors saved as they are dying and proclaiming the truth of the Gospel and through their faithful dying that God would redeem that persecutor. Even stories of, and, and, and accounts where someone would be put to death for the cause of Christ, but through their faithfulness, the same one who... Uh, was persecuting them or bringing them to this place of their death, would then uh, confess Christ and then lay their own head on the chopping block. We find that God works through these ways in which you and I cannot even imagine. How could God use sinners? How could God save sinners? God does so because He is gracious. You see, though it is not meant for us to know every purpose, rather to trust in the providence of the potter. We are the clay. This world is His. It is not our own. Even every creation, visible and invisible, belong to God. Everything in the heavenlies, everything in the depths, there is nothing that escapes the hand of God. If you guys remember this, the account of Job, what happens there? Does the devil just start off in chapter 1 and just go and do whatever he wants to do? No, he comes, has to give and make account before God. And it is God who says, have you considered my servant Job? And the devil says, oh, sure. If you would just take your hand from him, 
I, I could devour him. I could unconvert him is really the idea of what the devil gets at. And God says, nope. And God then even gives the devil the stipulations and the limits of how far the devil may go. Have we ever thought of such? It should bring us comfort knowing that the devil can only go as far as the Lord would allow. That the sinfulness of this world will only go but so far until God says, enough. The, the Bible throughout the book of Psalms talks so much of this. The wicked wag their tongue at God. The, the wicked shake their fists at God and curse God and, and raise up and rebel against Him. And one day He will say, enough. Though right now it may seem that sin has won, that the devil is the, the victor, the promise is found even in the same chapter as the very first sin and the fall of man and the fall of all of humanity and, all, and even the created world itself that God says one day my enemy will be crushed forever. And even alludes to the point that when he says, and I will put enemy between thee, uh, between thee uh, and the woman and between thy seed and her seed and it shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel that the Bible tells us that Jesus will one day make every enemy his footstool. Literally, under his heel is the idea, right? When you uh, put your feet up in your lazy boy, your recliner, or up on an ottoman, or whatever you might put it up on, what are you resting on? The heel. Literally showing that, that Christ is, is the conqueror and the, and the victor. So sin works in this way. From the man's side of things, right? Man chooses sin... Or we choose obedience to God. You see, sin is not only disobedience, but sin as well is the obedience of our flesh and even of the devil's ways and works. Secondly, with sin, we find that Satan works in this. Satan is working out evil. Satan is described to, to be one who seeks to steal, kill, and to destroy. None of those things are good, by the way. Well, this is his plan, his purpose. What God allows the devil uses to corrupt and to spread this sort of rule of darkness, but yet he can only go but so far. And he will only go for so long until even he himself one day, praise be to God, will be cast into that lake of fire forever and forever. We often think that it is the devil who does the tormenting in hell. I want you to know it will one day be the devil himself will be the one who is tormented. It is the wrath of God that abides upon every sinner who rejects Christ and as well as upon the devil himself. But yet, in the middle of sin, in the middle of sinners, God uses this terrible fall of man to redeem mankind and be glorified. Grace, glory. Grace and glory. By God's grace, for God's glory. To demonstrate His grace. To demonstrate His glory. So when we ask these questions, really the root is, the root of, of this question should not be, why does God allow man? Especially when you and I love the idea of free will, don't we? We love the idea to be able to make our own independent choices and God gives man this choice and Man rejects God. But yet, what man did that was evil and what the devil meant for evil, God meant for good to redeem that same sinful soul. 
I want to give you two, two verses to end tonight. Well, two, two passages. Isaiah 55, verse 8 through 11. If you want really the answer to all these questions that you might have about God and His Word, the answer's here, all right? <laughs> Isaiah 55, verse 8. The Lord says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. Has anyone ever found themselves going, how come God did it this way? How come God allowed this or that? I wouldn't have planned it that way. Praise the Lord. You're not God, I'm not God. God does what God does. God foresaw all the things that your brain and my brain could not. Our brains cannot even begin to fathom. He says, For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. This is not just in the realm that they are far too high for us to understand, but His ways are higher, meaning that they are pure. That even in all of the purest of thoughts that you and I might have about salvation or redemption or the way in which we should live, God's thoughts about those things are even higher and holier than what you and I could ever muster. And then He says, for as the rain cometh down and the snow from heaven and returneth not hither, but watereth the earth and maketh it to bring forth and bud, that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth. It shall not return unto me void, but it shall accomplish that which I please, and it shall prosper in the thing whereto I sent it. God ultimately will bring in His harvest. God ultimately will bring in and bring about His glory and will bring about His plans and His decrees to fruition. But He desires to use man to do so, and that's what Adam was placed in the garden for. But Adam rejected God's plan. Furthermore, to perhaps help our minds battle and wrestle with some of these questions that do come to our brains. And by the way, it is not sinful to wonder these things. But yet there is sin that says, how could God do such or anything that might say in reply, like in Romans 9 tells us, why hast thou made me thus to the potter? What can we tell the Creator? All throughout the Bible and even in the same conversations with Job, God says, sorry, did you give me advice? Did you tell me how to create? But were you there? Did, did you help me in planning salvation? Were you there in the heavens? No. God is God and we are not. Romans 11 tells us this, verse 32 to 36. For God hath concluded them all in unbelief. But I love this next part. That He might have mercy upon all. Grace, glory. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and His ways past finding out. For who hath known the mind of the Lord? Or who hath been His counselor? Or who hath first given to Him, and it shall be recompensed unto Him again? For of Him, through Him, and to Him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. Tonight we end with this. That even though we don't have all the answers 
to our questions. We ultimately can rest in the Word and will of God to the glory of God. That even though sin abounds, God's grace abounds, even though we find a world that is so fallen, we yet find this holy God who will be glorified in all things and to whom be glory forever and forever. Amen demonstrates and reveals His glory to draw us to one point, to one person, the second person of the Trinity who would die on that cross for our sins. The peak high point of all of human history that was foreknown and foretold from eternity past to eternity future that all of creation looks to this cross and sees God's grace and glory. So tonight, may our minds, questions, and our hearts, ponderings Bring us to the place, not where we get so confused and we give up, or we question and we go, well, I just don't get it, so it's not worth studying. But rather, where we come to a place where we go, God is God, I am not. And God in all things demonstrates and reveals His grace, demonstrates and reveals His glory, so that in turn I might receive His grace and give Him glory, both now and forever and forever. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. And God, that we might be able to study such a a deep subject of sin and the reality and the depths and the reasons and all these things. But Lord, yet we find that even in the midst of a sin-cursed world with sinful people, Lord, vile and wicked and unrighteous, yet You have used us. You have given us Your grace. You have saved us by Your grace. You keep us by Your grace. And One day, Lord, it will be Your grace that brings us into the very presence of Your glory forever and forever. So God, help us to give You glory both now and to look forward to the day of which we will glorify You in our glorified bodies forever throughout all of eternity to spend with You. Lord, we we love and we thank You for these things. Help us to, to dive deeper into Your Word, God, not just so that we might say that we know more things, but God, so that we would have a truer and more deep, faithful understanding and belief and follow you all of our days, Lord. Lord, strengthen our faith, strengthen our hearts. God, use us as we go from this place tonight to tell of your grace and to tell of your glory throughout this world. Lord, we love you and we thank you for this time. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.